0: Speaking Destroy is the podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Spirit of Drift frontman Nate Garrett, who is the former guitarist for Gate Creeper and a massive Metallica fan. Three different Spirit of Drift albums have landed in the coveted Top 40 Albums of the Year list in Decibel Magazine, two of them in the top 10, and one, Enlightened in Eternity, at number five for 2020. The album was also included in the top 10 of the year-end album list from Revolver Magazine. Want to support this podcast? Go into Apple Podcasts, leave a 5-star rating, and write a nice little review like this one from PMC Derm. Bar Talk! I can't count how many times at a bar, barbecue, etc. I found myself in a discussion about one of the greatest metal bands of all time, Metallica. This podcast is exactly that. Metalhead's talking about Metallica. You will not be disappointed. Or this one from Kelly S. None. Bring on the pain. Love every bit of this podcast. Growing up a Metallica fan. It's great to be able to hear all things about the band with a great host, Ryan. He is the man. Check it out. Thank you, Kelly or blue earth. Jim dandy. Who says, if you'd like Metallica, this is for you. It's nice to hear a podcast about one thing. Metallica. It is focused, entertaining and about Metallica. It's awesome. Subscribe. Yes. Blue earth, Jim dandy subscribe to this podcast and the others in the pop curse podcast network, including pop curse, which features musicians talking about movies and No Prize From God, featuring conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. You can also support Speak and Destroy on Patreon, get access to exclusive bonus episodes called from my interview archives with folks like Glenn Danzig and Kirk Hammett, among others. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. You can find Speak and Destroy at SpeakandDestroy.com and on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And if you haven't heard Spirit Adrift what are you waiting for? Go listen to this band. This is my conversation with Nate Garrett of Spirit Adrift. This is Speak and Destroy. So, Nate, tell me a little bit about, before we even get to the Metallica part, your earliest experiences with music and, you know, maybe what you heard around the house. And at what point you fell in love with it? And at what point you realized, okay, not only is this something I love, this is something I need to participate in. Cool. Yeah, I can definitely
1: do that. um, you know, I... I... I was involved in music from a very, very young age. I was raised by my grandparents and they put me in piano lessons really young. Um, I mean like toddler age, but I didn't really, even as a really little kid, I didn't really think it was cool. I had no like, there wasn't really any profound level of excitement involved in that. But the stuff that I remember hearing super early on that I did take notice of um, as far as, like, exciting me and me thinking it was cool. I remember hearing Creedence Clearwater Revival really early on in life. Um, and then from there, I remember <clears throat> when the movie Happy Gilmore came out, actually. I was pretty young. <laughs> yes. I was probably in, like, second grade or third grade or something like that um the intro has tuesday's gone by leonard skinnerd yeah. playing yeah so i heard those guitars and i was like whoa that's cool and i think it took me a while to figure out that it was leonard skinnerd um and then you know this was before it was super easy to just like there were no cell phones, nobody was really using <laughs> There was no the, Shazam. Yeah, yeah, nothing like that. Nobody was really using the internet in any sort of uh, useful way. Um, so you just kind of had to randomly hear stuff and hope you could figure out what it was. And the big one was, uh, I mean, I remember Skinner, but, but the big pivotal moment was hearing Jimi Hendrix on an Apple computer commercial. Purple Haze. Mm. And that's when I got, I was like, I have to get a guitar. Fuck piano. Like piano sucks. (laughs) I'm going to be a guitar player. Uh, And then sometime after that, I was watching VH1 and I saw the video for Black Sabbath Paranoid. And that was the moment when I was like, Oh, okay. Like, this is what I'm doing. I looked at those guys and, um, that was like the most definitive sense of direction I had ever felt in my life was I wanted to look and sound and be like those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, that's kind of what, what led me to Metallica. And I, I think Metallica was the next band I really got obsessed with immediately following Black Sabbath.
0: That's quite a great trajectory, especially with that Skinner in there early on. And of course that was years before Metallica would put, Tuesday's gone on Garage Inc.
1: Yeah, I it wasn't too because I'm only 32, so it wasn't.
0: It was probably only a few years before that, actually. Mm. Well, I'm yeah, um, so, yeah. I guess I'm thinking about Billy Madison in theaters versus.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I saw. Well, it was Happy Gilmore, so I think for Happy Gilmore. Actually, sorry. Yeah, yeah, that was even later. So yeah, it's. Uh. Yeah, it, it probably was a few years later. Which, when you're in like middle school, that seems like
0: an eternity. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah. Okay. So I, I just looked. Happy Gilmore is '96, and I think Garage Inc. was '98 or '99. So yeah. Okay. Well, wow, man. sorry. Very I was, close.
1: I was eight then when I when I fell in love with Leonard Skinnerd. Um, you said '96.
0: Yeah, '96. Yeah. And then and Garage I, I Inc. was uh, November '98. I
1: was probably more like uh, thirteen or fourteen when I when I heard Metallica playing Tuesday's Gone." With I think it's
0: Pepper Keenan and Les Claypool, right? Um, yes, and uh, Jerry Cantrell. Oh my God, crazy! And John Popper of Blues Traveler. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> like a, yeah, I think it was from one of those bridge school benefits. So there's like a bunch of guests. Awesome. um so yeah let's talk about then so metallica then would have been pretty deep into the load reload era um and then you know obviously yeah garage inc and snm the first snm is that sort of what they were coasting on when you got into them or
1: yeah, um, but again, I I didn't really even know how to use the internet at that time. Being raised by my grandparents, it was like this new thing. They didn't really care about it. I was an only child, so I was just kind of like discovering things in these really haphazard kind of ways. And uh, I know I had like – I had got a bunch of Black Sabbath CDs from the mall. There was a CD store – I think it was – Something and then it became an FYE. But one of the employees in there was this dude, probably in his 20s, maybe early 30s. Who the first time I heard Black Sabbath, I went in there that day and I found this guy and I was like, I need some Black Sabbath CDs. And for the rest of like my middle school and high school years, this guy was kind of like a guide for me, you know. So I picked up a Mm -hmm. bunch of Black Sabbath CDs. you know, I had probably heard five or six different Black Sabbath CDs. I know Past Lives came out that double live album right when I was getting into them. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, when I figured out who Metallica was, I I kind of had a flashback to. Uh, I I went to this summer camp I think, in between fourth and f- or fourth and fifth grade or fifth and sixth grade um and we this camp was in north carolina and i remember we went on like a a backpacking trip that was like three days or something and we were camping and these rednecks were getting belligerent to uh the song fuel (laughs) from reload and and i just remember being that age like out in north carolina and hearing this song over and over and over and over and being like, man, that's badass! What is that? Uh, so I kind of later um, after I discovered black Sabbath and stuff like that, I realized like, Oh, that's that Metallica band. Okay. And I started piecing together like, Oh man, they do that song that's on the radio sad, but true. They do that song mm. too. <laughs> uh, oh, and they do, Nothing else matters, and I started figuring out who Metallica was and connecting all these songs. I was like, I can't believe all these badass songs are the same band. So I went to my trusted guy in the, the music store in the mall in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and I was like, Hey, man, uh, I really like Black Sabbath. You know, I've been listening to all this, but I need to get start getting into Metallica. I think. And he he's like, Here's what you need, and he gave me Kill 'Em All. Wow! Wow! What a starting point. Literally, here,
0: here. Start at the beginning, kid. <laughs> yeah, and I'm
1: looking at the cover. I'm like, this is fucking red, and I'm I'm looking at it, but I don't recognize any of the song titles.
0: And so I start looking
1: <laughs> looking through whatever CDs they have, and I find the Black Album, and I'm like, oh, I know all these songs. So the first two albums that I bought were Kill 'em All and the Black Album. Which that is
0: insane and awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's kind of cool looking back because that kind of bookends like my favorite period of the band. Obviously, I think probably everybody's favorite period of the band. Um, but I, I'll never forget getting home and I listened to the whole black album because I knew a lot of those songs. I was super excited to hear the rest of them. I was like, Oh, this is cool looking at the band photos. They're all wearing black and stuff. This is fucking awesome. These guys look great, sound great, it's heavy. Um, and then I put on kill em all and you have to keep in mind the only other metal band I'd heard at the time was black Sabbath.
0: Right. And I mean that the, quite the evolutionary leap from the start of metal <laughs> to the, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah just about like the, the start, start of, of
1: extreme metal. Yeah. I would say yeah. Black Sabbath is kind of like, or maybe merciful fate, stuff like that. Um, so I put on kill em all and it starts playing. And I didn't dislike it, but I had the distinct thought of, wow, there's been a mistake, and the wrong CD wound up in this CD <laughs> case. This is not the same band. This is can't possibly be the same band. Right. And I've listened to the first song, Hit the Lights. I pop it out, and I look, and I'm like, wow, it's even got the wrong text on it, you know, because the CD itself has Metallica, Kill em All on it. I'm like, this can't. Possibly be the same band, <laughs> and I listen to all of Kill 'Em All, and I'm like, This is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Uh, and then you know, at, for whatever reason, at that age, I was so ignorant about like how bands work and how releasing albums works and how writing songs works, and the, I was just completely oblivious to that whole thing. So, the idea that a band could start off sounding like that and somehow end up sounding like they did on the black album seemed impossible in my mind at the time. So I, I literally thought it was some kind of mistake. Um, so, great. but you know, it, you know, then I got guitar world magazine and I started reading about like master puppets and, and that magazine really helped clue me in on a lot of stuff. Um, so then I filled in the gaps in between those two albums and obviously it ended up, making a lot more sense but i remember <laughs> right, that first day
0: i was just like
1: so confused man i just couldn't
0: figure it out you know it reminds me when i was a kid i bought a black flag the black flag jealous again ep the 12 inch and i had an older brother who's five years older than me and i was listening to that 12 inch like i'd been through it a few times and my brother came in my room and he said hey you know you're listening to that on the wrong speed right (laughs) oh my god i've just been listening to it on the because it was a 12 inch so i had put it at like you know album speed but it was it's an ep so it was supposed to be at like 45 speed so i was listening to like the most doomed out sludgy (laughs) black flag anyone's ever heard and And i thought it it was awesome yeah that that's kind
1: of what they became though ah that's a good point that's <laughs> kind of like you yeah.
0: you were looking into the future <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i was looking into my own future as you know as an adult doom metal is my subgenre of choice so nice nice
1: yeah i i have some cool uh early memories of those black flag albums too i love that ep particularly
0: me too and the cover art is just like i mean you know kids throw around the phrase iconic these days but that was uh, iconic cover art i think also yeah for sure Um, so where did it go from there in terms of, you know, learning to play and jamming with other people and, and, and the intersection of Metallica and your own career as it were? Well, no
1: bullshit. I, I learned every Metallica song on guitar. I had a feeling
0: that's where I was going with it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I had a feeling. Through the Black Album. um, Wow, wow. Yeah, every song. Every song. Um, You know, I was stuck in this tiny, boring-ass, super conservative vanilla town in Oklahoma. And um, I had issues even as a kid, which has taken me like this long. I'm 32 now to kind of like identify some of the stuff that was going on. But when I was like you know, 12, 13, 14, probably even getting into 15. I was like pretty antisocial. Um, I still have some remnants of the, that sort of like misanthropy and stuff and social anxiety and stuff like that. But that particular age, I really didn't have a social life at all. So I would sit at home and just learn stuff by ear. I learned a ton of black Sabbath songs um and you know like i said i subscribed to guitar world magazine oh so you were busting out the tabs (laughs) yeah you (laughs) know i i use the tabs but a lot of the stuff i learned by ear and i still Mm -hmm. play it the way i learned it which i think probably isn't exactly how they play some of it but it's what sounds right to me um yeah i you know guitar world for whatever reason was the leading uh pro master of puppets propaganda wing (laughs) of like journalism (laughs) the minister
0: ministry (laughs) of information yeah um and master of puppets (laughs) is great
1: but i i actually have come to believe that ride the lightning is
0: probably my Mm. favorite
1: metallica record well I'll I'll, I'll,
0: i'll tell you if and when you know when the world resumes some kind of normalcy and touring is happening and whatnot and you take a deep dive into the episodes of this podcast, you will hear me say that Ride the Lightning is also my favorite metallic album. Nice. Okay. Which has cool, changed man. over the years, but the same thing happened that it sounds like happened with you, where I I sort of retroactively settled into that view.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I've always loved everything from Kill 'em all to through the Black Album. And I love parts of load and reload too. Um, but as do I. Yeah. It, it's it's changed so much um i just feel like objectively in a lot of ways that's the superior album now but you know i remember going on this family trip and the only two cds i had with me it was like a two-week trip and i had vulgar display of power and and justice for all and that's the only i just listened to them back to back to back to back to back for two weeks so just like I want everything
0: favorite. dry and crisp and pummeling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man, exactly. Those two albums. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah all treble and mids and yeah. <laughs> Clicky kick drum. Um, yes. yes. But yeah, so you know, Black album was my favorite at first, because that's all the stuff I knew. Um I think at one point Kill 'em all was probably even my favorite in certain ways. And then it was Master of Puppets because of Guitar World magazine shoving it down my throat. And then probably justice and now i think it's it's ride the lightning and it'll probably change again i would imagine but you know even before i was in a band i was just sitting there learning every metallica song and i didn't even know why it just made me happy it just made me feel accomplished and i've always had this like really hyper obsessive drive and to the point of like where it's probably unhealthy you know i mean i was just cooped up in my room like not talking to anybody not wanting to do anything um dude i just i just actually realized how i first figured out who metallica was mm, go on. and it's <laughs> it's from it, i was in seventh grade and i like i just had a memory recall so the the dude that ended up playing bass in the very first band I was in, um, in eighth grade. We were sitting in seventh grade English, and this dude was like super weird. If I was antisocial, this guy was like <laughs> living in a cave, you know. And uh,
0: the the weirdos. We we always <laughs> find each other. We always. Oh find yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, and we did. His name was Tim, um, and we were doing seventh grade book reports but it, it had to be a biography and i remember i chose muhammad ali i was like really into him at the time my best friend growing up was a boxer um and so the teacher like went around the class and was like who'd you pick for your book report and people would say you know what are, george washington or whatever and i was muhammad ali and she got to tim and he has this book and he holds it up and he goes Metallica and there's four guys on the cover. <laughs> she's like what what are you talking about? He's like that's the ultimate hasher move. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And uh he was like I want to Who's your my- favorite historical
0: <laughs> figure? Metallica. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> Says I'm doing my book report on Metallica and she's like it has to be one person and he's like but this book is about all four of them and <laughs> She wouldn't let him do it, but I remember seeing their picture on the cover, and I was like, "Man, they look badass." And I found them at lunch. I'm like, "I okay, that's how I wound up getting kill them all." Because Tim was like, "He's the dude that goes, yeah, if you're gonna get anything, get kill them all," because all the other stuff sucks.
0: Oh yes, it's so awesome so, that you met someone <laughs> like that too. Yeah, that just—that just yeah—that just, see, yeah, just seems like a important seminal part of of the journey is to know oh, yeah. somebody like that. Totally. Um, I feel like even Metallica would appreciate that, you know?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and, Just the, curious. And, and the thing about Kill Em All that's amazing is if that record existed in some sort of vacuum, right? Like if they never, you know, if the band broke up after they made that, it would still be this really important, cool, special, weird outlier metal album you know never, never yeah. mind the fact that it was essentially the demo for what the band became yeah because it's, it's really pretty different you know i mean there's obviously a lot of dave mustang on that record but even even still you know there's parts of songs that dave brought in from his old band panic there's parts that that headfield brought in from leather charm you know and of course there's a bunch of diamond head and a bunch of motorhead influence in there and it really is you know we just think of it as a metallic album now obviously and we know those songs so well but if you if you were to as an adult discover that band for the first time i feel like that first album sounds really different and almost sort of disconnected from the rest of them
1: right that's why i couldn't believe that it was the same band that made the black album right when i first heard it i was like this is not possible." between the production and the songs and the vocals and the playing and everything i was like this can't possibly be the same band
0: yeah whereas if if you come in through reload and then you hear the black album and then if someone handed you master of puppets and said hey this is their first album you'd be like oh it tracks you know that makes sense sure yeah yeah Kill 'em them all you're just like what who's this weird like scrappy punk band <laughs> <You> totally <laughs> like, and and yeah you know. i just
1: remembered the reason that I got that was not the guy that worked at the CD store. It was my friend, Tim, who, and, and you know, I, I secretly also got the black album because I wanted that one. Cause I knew all those songs. Yeah. Um, that makes sense but too. That was my little secret. You know, I wasn't going to tell Tim that I got the black album. I just, I got Kill 'Em all so I could pass the cool test with Tim. Um, and then yeah, filled in the gaps. And then oddly enough, he and I ended up starting, a band with a third guy uh, our buddy Andrew who played drums I played guitar Tim played bass Andrew played drums and that was our very first band and you know one of the one of the very few bands we could all agree on was Metallica and I think Misfits were probably the other
0: mm, very cool and my introduction to the Misfits was via Metallica same call. Yeah, so Yeah,
1: totally. And I got the uh the coffin like box set.
0: Mhm. And oh, and that would have been new right around that same time that we're we're talking about cuz I think that I think the coffin box was 97.
1: It was it had come out, yeah, like during this period for sure or at least around there.
0: Yeah, I think it was yeah, maybe 96. You know what? I think it was 96 and then Static Age coming out by itself was 97. Um but nevertheless yeah those are you know i mean i have a misfits tattoo and i used to sing in a misfits tribute band with some friends so <laughs> well my first band
1: was was damn near a misfits tribute band i think we learned almost every danzig era song at some point amazing yeah
0: <laughs> uh yeah i used to we used to uh we did it i think four or five times we it was always either on halloween or the halloween week and then once we opened for a Smiths Morrissey tribute, twice Amazing. actually, we opened actually for them twice. But yeah, and it was <laughs> all, I, I always sang, and then it was different combinations of um, people from different bands that I'm friends with here in California that would it would be in it and stuff. But that's um,
1: killer, dude. What's really funny is the um, the new we're calling him our U.S. touring bass player uh, uh-huh. for Spirit Adrift. His name's Sunny. He played in Arizona's best Misfits tribute band.
0: No way. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. That is so awesome, dude. And it's crazy. I mean, it's one of the things I love about a lot of these bands like Metallica and the Misfits that have such a huge cultural footprint is that they can sustain all, all of these Tribute bands and stuff, you know, that can have like careers. I mean, Sweet and Tender Hooligans, which is the Morrissey Smith's tribute band I was talking about, they sell out House of Blues in San Diego, LA, Las Vegas. And yeah, it's a tribute band. And it's like, and it doesn't, you know, I don't feel like those bands take anything away from the real thing. It's so, it's just great that there's like this little side industry that can exist. I mean, Zach Sabbath, that's a great example, also. Like, true. Yeah. You know, they play pretty decent sized venues they're they're putting out records now they just put out a record that's them covering the first sabbath album
1: yeah we're actually both on a volume four
0: tribute album that just came out oh that's right i saw that came out but you know what i didn't see who all was on it which song did you guys do
1: we wanted to do Snowblind, but we ended up doing super and i'm kind of glad we did because it was like sort of a challenge and i feel like we fucking nailed it i feel really good about it
0: I'm going to have to listen to that as soon as we're done talking. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> rules. Yeah, my my uh, hardcore band I was in 20 years ago. I don't know if you remember when Hydra Head Records was doing their Black Sabbath tribute, but it was like a series of split seven inches.
1: Oh, yeah. I got the Neurosis Soylent Green
0: seven. Inches. Yes. And we were trying to get on that. And it's funny in retrospect because we covered it never came out and we didn't do a very good job of it but we covered heaven and hell and our idea was hey nobody's doing dio era sabbath because there was this weird moment where in the 90s where you know ozzy came back to sabbath and of course everybody worshiped the original lineup as they should and a lot of hardcore guys you know from the hardcore and punk scene And thrash metal guys, like a lot of people were getting into stoner stuff, doom stuff, and of course getting into Sabbath as a result. But it was a weird period where there, at least in the circles I was in, there wasn't really any celebration going on of Dio Sabbath, let alone any other singer other than Ozzy.
1: Yeah, I feel that. I I didn't really get into the Dio stuff until probably like 2007 or so
0: yeah and I find that interesting because once you're into the Dio stuff you're like oh this stuff is magical amazing, amazing. Yeah, but yeah yeah we were the only band who did that but
1: uh, what, what band are you talking uh, about? it was
0: a band called burn it down it was not, oh, not nice. a big band or whatever but we but right we, uh, we didn't get on there and but it also Hydra had had to stop putting out those seven inches and they were planning on doing once they had done however many of them they would put them all together as an album but it was around the same time that Sharon Osbourne was doing the Nativity in Black tribute albums. I think they mm-hmm. did two of them. And that, you know, those had like Megadeth and Machine Head and, you know, big Ozfesti metal bands. And uh, so they, as I understand it, they put the kibosh on the Hydra Head one.
1: Bummer. Yeah. I so, love that, that split that I have. And what's interesting it, that ties in with what you're saying, Soylent Green's approach was great because they did a medley, of an Ozzy period song, a Dio period song, and uh, a song from Born Again. But I'm kind of pissed now that they didn't throw a Tony Martin song in there because <laughs> as well. I'm
0: <laughs> way into Tony Martin Sabbath these days, dude. I love Soil and Green. That that was a band actually that, that my old band played with um, a few times. They were uh, Ben in particular was like a band buddy to us. Uh, They're mind boggling, dude mind-boggling amazing amazing band and I, they had Bill to do one of their album covers that's like my one of my two or three favorite comic book artists of all time so lots, yeah. lots of love about that band <laughs> yeah for sure so you have spoken before about that first time you saw Metallica live uh, what can you tell me about that experience yeah man I was 15
1: and uh, they put out Saint Anger Uh, My friends and I went to Hastings, which was like the new place to get music. And we waited in line and they had like cardboard cutouts and the whole, they did a whole big thing. That's when they were still doing like big day of like album release celebrations, you know? Mm -hmm. And we got it and we sort of, dude, I actually, the first time I heard the title track, my buddy Lane, the boxer, He had uh, MTV. I didn't have MTV at my house. Um, And apparently, (laughs) they played the music video for St. Anger on MTV. Lane called me and held his landline telephone up to his TV speakers so I could hear St. Anger for the first time. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, I remember being like, Hmm. I had a feeling in my stomach (laughs) even as as a a 15 year old who's like totally in love with Metallica, even the load and reload stuff I've had respect for and love for. Um, I just had this sinking feeling and I was like, are you sure that's Metallica? And he was like, yeah, like, okay. And then, you know, fast forward, we wait in line to get the new album. I think we did a decent job of convincing ourselves that we liked it for a while. Uh, and then they were doing one of those summer sanitarium tours and we were like, dude, even if however we feel about the new album, like we got to go.
0: Um, isn't it interesting by the way, how you can convince yourself you like something that you really don't.
1: Yeah. I I was, I was talking to somebody about that recently and that mechanism, uh, it wears out eventually.
0: It does. And I'll tell you, (laughs) I, I, I saw, the Phantom Menace seven times in the theater <laughs> paid full price and yeah, similar was just thing <laughs> convinced that I loved it. And of course now it's like, yeah, so that last section where they fight Darth Maul, that part's cool. Um, <laughs> that part is cool. Yeah. yeah. That part's not bad. But yeah, you're right. It totally, it totally wears off.
1: Damage plan is what destroyed mine. I've never been able to do it since then uh, that, that damage plan record just ruined it. But St. Anger was a taste of, what was to come with the letdowns throughout the rest of my life. Uh, so well, we got. I, I would never tickets.
0: do this to you, but what a great poll quote from this episode. Yeah,
1: no, you you <laughs> totally can. You totally can. Uh, whatever you want for a poll quote. I'm full of them. Um, so yeah, we got tickets. We're 15 years old. I think Lane might've just turned 16 uh, or maybe not. Cause we had my grandparents drove us to, From Oklahoma to uh, St. Louis and we went saw Metallica me and Lane were on the floor
0: Uh, we hated every single opening band oh man that tour was like uh, yeah I I don't remember that being a particularly good bill I don't think I actually saw them on that tour it was Mudvayne opening who
1: was actually by far
0: the best band
1: other than Metallica (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> so um, I, so you already know you're in trouble
1: <laughs> yeah and we dude we were 15 we were like these guys are pretty cool I remember the yeah. singer kind of reminded me of Phil Anselmo and I was like a huge fan of Pantera
0: mm-hmm.
1: at the time I was like ah this, this is okay but then uh, Deftones played not into it uh, still not into it and then Linkin Park played and really not into it never into it and then Limp Biscuit played Ugh um and actually funny story there which i do want to tell when we first got there security had, we ran right up to the front we we're like 15 ready to go we're going to mm-hmm. stand in the front for all 8 hours or however long it takes security had these sandwiches wrapped in tin foil and there was like shitty peanut butter sandwiches and cheese sandwiches and they're handing them out to people and my friend lane is like destroying fools trying to like hoard as many of these sandwiches as he can (laughs) in his t-shirt and in his pockets (laughs) he's handing them to me i'm like and i'm like dude he was just being obnoxious as fuck uh
0: and and for the security guards passing those out to the kids it's like man no good deed goes unpunished
1: right yeah and i'm like dude what the fuck are you doing what we already ate like what's your problem and he looks at me with this grin on his face and he's got all these sandwiches and he goes dude Limp Biscuit's playing later <laughs> like, <laughs> oh it makes sense okay so we start like hey just getting as many of these things as we can and we stuff our pockets we're like running into older like heshed out Metallica fans and giving them sandwiches we're kind of like building an army or whatever <laughs> I
0: love this uh, so much
1: <laughs> Limp Biscuit starts playing and uh we just start we start tearing off pieces of these sandwiches and crunching them up into these little like tinfoil sandwich (laughs) balls and just (laughs) fucking destroying. It was like relentless, just destroying tinfoil
0: peanut butter and jelly projectiles. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, to the point where like Fred Durst keeps stopping the
1: set. He threw homophobic slurs at us, which was kind of his MO.
0: Um, yeah, and we, he, luckily he didn't uh surf out on a piece of plywood and uh you know provide a soundtrack to anybody's date rape save yeah, that for woodstock exactly. yeah dude well he would have got
1: we had a, like a small army of these like dudes in their 50s and in <laughs> battle jackets and stuff and uh he just we kept fucking them up and they had to keep stopping the set and we ran out of sandwiches. I was pulling coins out of my pocket. And I remember hitting the bass player, like, in his pickups. And you could hear it through the PA. He had active pickups, I guess. And you could, like, <laughs> hear these coins hitting his bass. Fred Durst, like, was so mad that he started crying. Like, the cry anger thing, you know. And the bass yeah. player was, had tears in his eyes. And they cut the set short. And I swear to God, dude, two shows later, we saw him in St. Louis. I think it was two shows later in Chicago. Limp Biscuit broke up in the middle of that tour and they were gone for years. So you can thank us for that. <laughs> That's the first time I saw Metallica. Like, we broke up Limp Biscuit. Uh, <laughs> and this is before Metallica even plays. We've already broken up Limp Biscuit.
0: It was a great day. That is a great day. And, you know, something I think people may not understand in the context of history is that you know there are bands that go on the wrong tours and there are bands that you know have a difficult you know it's hard to open for slayer it's hard to open for iron maiden or whatever you know and there's bands that challenge an audience because they're doing something new and innovative or or strange or obscure or i'll provide an
1: example dude death heaven who are great friends of mine mm-hmm. awesome dudes touring with uh what anthrax and lamb of god emperor go. that's there you go. tough and, and it's tough. they you know they are artists and they're forward-thinking musicians and they're good dudes and they're creative. Um, Not the same thing. Not exactly the same thing. Yeah
0: well we'll see that's what that's where I'm going with this is that Limpus gets none of that. Limp getting (laughs) is getting pieces of sandwiches thrown at them because they're (laughs) horrific. Yeah. And I'm just—I'm trying to think of the right way to put it because I would hate for Limp Biscuit or any of their supporters to hear a conversation like this one and be like, "Yeah, Limp Biscuit, dude." It's like no, they're not iconoclastic. They're not provocateurs. Like, (laughs) there's nothing cool about it. It's—it's because they're—you know what it is? It's because they're intruders. They're like invaders. Like they don't—they're like cultural like parasites or something like yeah and they should have said no
1: to the tour that's obvious but
0: yeah they should here, say no to any know. tour though i'm, I'm cuz here's the thing there are a few bands i mean i'm i'm generally like a, hey everybody likes what they like it's all subjective but, but 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 my thing is like intention and authenticity that's all i ask for i don't have to like the art that results from it but for me the the measuring stick is does this person mean it? Do they believe it? Are they doing this because they, they, they have to, you know? And I feel that way about say corn, for example, you know, when you would see Jonathan Davis, especially in those early days, you're you're looking at him and you're like, that guy's got to get something out of him. You know, he's, sure. he's working yeah. something out up there. Love it or hate it, like it or leave it. You know, this is real. And then Fred, and I, I Fred Durst is you. like, some about jock. the
1: intention thing. Yes. Oh, absolutely. He's like, and, yeah, and he's I'm, just
0: some bro that sees Jonathan Davis and is like, that looks cool. I could get girls and money.
1: Yeah, and, and I, you know, would I do the same thing today? Maybe not, but do I regret doing it? No. Am I glad I did it? Yes, because that's what they deserved at that point in time. And I will say, uh West Borland and I have some mutual friends and kind of hang out in similar circles. Uh-huh. And I hear he's really cool. And he was not in Limp Biscuit when I did that. So he was. <laughs> I think that guy is probably a pretty genuine artist. Yeah. But he was not there. And it he does. And I will day. say, and
0: I have the same sense about him. And I and just like you, mutual friends, and hear great things. And I've actually met him a couple of times. I don't. I don't think he'd remember. But. But then I go, man, but he he does keep going back.
1: <laughs> That's true that's true but he he got out before the massacre happened in st louis so that's true that was a smart move but
0: there was a great um i think it was dennis miller It might have been colin quinn one of the great snl weekend update anchors i remember doing a joke it was when the new kids on the block were really huge and he put up a picture of them and then he started pointing to donnie Wahlberg, and he was like this is the one i hate the most and i'll tell you why because he's the guy that he's the one that's tough, he's dangerous. And he's always got a look on his face like, Hey, I might be up here going, Whoa, oh, 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 but I'm badass. <laughs> and I feel like, from the artistic cred standpoint, that's kind of West Borland.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I could see it.
0: Okay, I I'm in the stupid it. band, but I know it sucks. I'm in on it. I'm cool. I'm oh, dude, cool there's band. I would say
1: there's more cases of that in popular metal bands than than the alternative i think i think most dudes and bands that have been around that long and uh are that popular are kind of like in on the joke
0: they get it yeah i mean yeah. hey, I, I had mark tremonti on the podcast not, not, and he was super cool it was he's badass he was one of the, most, one of the most popular episodes yeah and you know and we talked about merciful fate and venom and death angel and all. we him and i had he him in Michigan, me in Indiana, we had very, we're similar age. We had very similar experiences getting into music. And it's like, yeah, obviously Creed is a big punchline, but I don't hold it against that guy.
1: (laughs) Did he seem to be in on the Creed punchline or I
0: guess it's sort of like he, he understands. And then there's also, you know, I've been trying to get one of the Kroger brothers from Nickelback on the podcast because there's a thing on YouTube. They're at some like big festival somewhere, and they play like half of "Sad but True," and it sounds badass. And I don't. I'm never gonna like Nickelback, but yeah, hey, I don't. I don't think those guys are phony. You know, I don't think that they're.
1: Yeah, I don't think so either, man. And listen, when I was a kid, I'm sure you were in the same boat. If you were listening to Black Flag and stuff, it's like you have a certain view of uh if people make music that's accessible that they're phony and they suck right. and they sold their soul out everyone's and the enemy it's battle lines and my my whatever. view on that has completely changed and it it just boils down to what you just said earlier which is is your intention pure like is was nickelback's intention to make really good radio rock music that they actually stand behind and stuff i don't know but but if so cool if not yeah if I, that's the sense like, i get right make some money then fuck yeah them, you know yeah
0: i feel like they put off and look there can even be art in kind of a, a winking or subversive sort of pandering kind of thing you know like i can think of some examples where you know somebody knows they're kind of pulling one over on on the public and there's a certain the darkness that the yes. darkness. I love That's that a great example their
1: first album
0: is fucking
1: amazing but they know what they're I mean it's like a tongue-in-cheek thing but it's also staying true to the spirit of what they're doing
0: yes and I mean hey Typo Negative is <laughs> one of my favorite bands of all time same and yeah and there's a a winking there of course and and self-deprecation and if you hear Peter Steele tell it you know I don't believe him by the way when you see the interviews where he's like this was all a joke we're surprised anybody likes it and it's like <laughs> it's yeah if you're a super fan like you and me you know that there's w- way more going on there
1: right well that's that's <laughs> like, like toby hooper saying that he set out to make a comedy when he made texas
0: chainsaw master
1: <laughs> and he doesn't right. know why people even are scared of it or whatever exactly
0: oh my gosh exactly uh and by the way this is what we do on this podcast metallic is the anchor and then we kind of veer off it's cool and you know i'm a huge champion of of lars ulrich and he has i mean his role in the band just can't be uh, understated in the way and in culture and in the way that he is you know always uh, curious always optimistic always gregarious always introducing New bands, always paying tribute to older bands. I say, oh, this is a preface only to say that uh, I think the brief Metallica Limp Biscuit flirtation was all Lars.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you're probably right. You're probably right. And and I don't fault Lars for that. Um, You know, if you go back and watch Some Kind of Monster, Kirk was the one that was correct in the situation. Mm -hmm. He said, if we do this and this and we don't put solos on our album, then we are dating it. To this right period. to right and now which knew, is that's like such an amazing
0: it. he's like silent bob in that movie right doesn't say <laughs> anything and then what he does yeah. it's super profound like yeah for sure yeah like i mean you know lar's had a point like oh, that's gonna sound dated that's not like what's going on right now and then kirk just had the superior point which was yeah you no know, it's gonna sound it's gonna date it to right now and he was right he, he was. was right he absolutely was um nobody bats a thousand <laughs> yeah true uh, but i
1: dude i agree with you with with the lars thing um have you talked to matt harvey from exhumed by chance
0: no and you know what we have uh we've been in contact with one another and they the exhumed account actually follows the podcast account because I, I i don't know why it hasn't happened yet actually and you, we've got should, a bunch of mutual friends
1: dude we we've had many many metallica discussions on tour and he wrote an article for decibel a while ago about um kind of what you just said about people underestimate Lars's and, and underappreciate the role that Lars plays in the songwriting, the arranging, in the mm-hmm. um cheerleading of the band and and the ferocious like push to keep the band relevant and to keep the band successful and to keep the band together um he you know the way i look at the Metallica formula is Lars and James are basically equal contributors just in different ways. I, I think that's the reality Without
0: of the situation. And I don't think James would disagree. You no, know, when you when no. you watch their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction and you see James pick Lars up in the big bear hut and like pick him up off the stage and thanking him for, you know, it, it, it that's, for somebody who doesn't express those kind of emotions very often, seeing that moment, I always think about that moment because it was, it was true gratitude and it was really Hatfield acknowledging like, hey, I've got great riffs and cool lyrics and people connect to what I do, but like, this is the guy. Like, This is the guy. This guy brought me here. Yeah. To the well, here, here's Hall a fame, caveat, yeah.
1: not to get too far away from seeing Metallica the first time, but quick caveat on that too. Mustaine and Cliff Burton made lars and james who they are who they became 100 those those two guys like at this point metallica i think is like really primarily lars and james an equal contribution but to get to the songwriters and and creative minds that they ended up becoming you know mustaine and cliff i think were largely responsible. you know Legend is Cliff taught them how to do harmonies, and uh I think Mustaine kind of showed them how to write like superior riffs in, in a lot of ways, and, mm-hmm. and just be super M-Mustaine aggressive.
0: Mustaine and, and headfield I think, invented a style of guitar playing. Absolutely, and yeah, countless bands. And Mustaine was the first frontman in Metallica.
1: Yeah, you know, sure. J-
0: James didn't really talk, and Mustaine was was the attitude, and the, and I, and I think it all worked out. You know for all the various what if universes i think it worked out exactly as it should have because of course we wouldn't have had megadeth if Mustaine hadn't been out of metallica but also there's just too much there was too much there to contain in one band like we needed all these yes
1: yeah, definitely you
0: know? i gotta say and for and for kirk's part it was really the murder in the for all my years of metallica fandom and how much i've always loved kirk and what he brings to the band and and of course, I mean, you know, he wrote the riff to Enter Sandman. and um, Dude, he
1: wrote the pre-chorus to Master of Puppets, the come crawling faster part, which is their maybe their best riff ever.
0: Dude, he wrote the die, die, die. Yeah. And he wrote that. That was an Exodus riff, that's right? An Exodus. It was an Exodus yeah. song, yeah. So that's, yeah, it was the Murder in the Front Row documentary where I think Kirk really shines because that documentary pointed out as much as we know the lore, the mythology, the story of Metallica coming together, we always hear about Kirk as like, and Kirk was an Exodus, and they brought him in at the 11th hour just before they made Kill 'em All to replace Mustaine. That Murder in the Front Row documentary really gives you a full picture of what a pivotal role Kirk played in the Bay Area. Um, and, you know, he was the leader of Exodus. And when I actually had Gary Holt on the podcast, and he said that Kirk taught him his first chords. Like Hell yeah! taught him how to play guitar, you know, and it's like, I, I
1: saw some documentary the other day. It wasn't that one, but it's one that one of the guys from overkill made.
0: Oh um, yeah. I forget what it's called, but I know you're talking about X overkill guy. Get thrashed or something like that. Yeah, Rat Rat skates, I think is the guy's name. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And um, man, there was some good info in there too, but I think Gary talked about that in that documentary as well. Talk about a cool guy, man. Oh yeah. <laughs>
0: and, and if, yeah. So it's like if Kirk, you know, Kirk kind of blessed us with, with Exodus <laughs> even, you know, it's like he, he planted the seed and then it, it, the tree all these branches and it's all kind of branches off the Metallica tree is. Yeah. Well,
1: some likes to look, say. man, Dave Mustaine sort of kind of gave Slayer a different perspective on how to write riffs. Cause Carrie yeah, King was in Megadeth in 84. And then all of a sudden he's writing riffs like piece by piece, which mm-hmm. are angular and, progressive and weird and super complex and and he wasn't writing riffs like that until he started playing with dave mustaine and Absolutely. you know correlation does not always equal causation but mustaine will take credit for that shit all day long so it's a matter of how much do you believe him you know
0: mm-hmm. i believe him you know because it's because it's too. uh and i've said this on the podcast before but you know when i was a kid and i was reading liner notes I understood that Mustaine used to be in Metallica and I understood that his name was in the writing credits on Kill 'Em All and a little bit on Ride the Lightning. But what I didn't understand and you don't really understand until you're in bands and know anything about the music business or whatever, is sort of the politics of how, you know, it, it kind of frustrates me when people talk about the way it's quote unquote supposed to be done with songwriting, because my understanding from a legal standpoint has always been there is no definitive way it is up to the songwriters themselves to agree or not (laughs) with each other about, okay, I did all the lyrics and melodies. So that's 50%. Okay. Well I did the riffs. That's 50% or, you know, it's up to the individual. So there's no real definitive way. But with that being said, everybody's kind of coming up with how they're going to list that stuff the way they want. And I think maybe because Mustaine wasn't in the band anymore, you know those songs that he's credited on he's always credited last so as a kid reading the liner notes I thought okay so he did like a little bit here like I don't know I don't know how that worked and then you know fast forward several decades later and there you know Mustaine gets up and plays with them at the anniversary shows and Lars says yeah Dave used to be in this band called Panic and when he came to Metallica he brought this song with him called Jump in the Fire.
1: I knew you were gonna say Jump in the Fire
0: yeah and it's like I, it was dr- honestly that moment and Megadeth's the band that got me into metal you know one of my favorite bands of all time some of my favorite records of all time my favorite guitar solo of all time is the holy wars solo nice um, but yeah it was that it wasn't until that moment 2011 or 12 or whenever that was that i realized like oh this was like a complete song <laughs> you know like, yeah it's taken me
1: this long to really piece together um the whole the sheer like magnitude of Dave Mustaine's role, not just in Metallica, but in thrash metal and metal in general. Um, and I think that's because, uh, you know, they touch upon it in, in the Rust and peace book that just came out. Mm -hmm. Every move that Metallica made was correct because they had really good management. Yeah. They weren't that fucked up on drugs and booze and stuff. Um,
0: and, and, and after their first record there was only one lineup change and it was because of death
1: right yeah and and they just they had a better pr machine they had a better uh approach to branding and stuff like that and mustaine being the true fucking aggro criminal traumatized fucking badass psycho that he is he never gave a shit about any of that he was too busy doing drugs and beating shit out of people and writing music like he he never put any sort of thought into crafting this sort of PR based shiny image of himself, you know? And I think it's just now getting to the point where he's sort of putting the effort in to maybe get the credit that he, instead of just like saying some outrageous shit, like, fuck you guys, you know, like he claims that his, his appearance in some kind of monster was like, edited to make him look bad and stuff maybe it was but for sure now he's kind of putting more effort into uh taking what i think is rightfully his being the the massive amount of credit that is due to him for the writing in metallica and possibly influencing carrie king to write different types of riffs in slayer and then obviously like megadeth that's that's three of the big four right there that he has a super instrumental role in you know?
0: Absolutely. And if you think about um, well, if you look at the big four to your point about the way the organizations have worked and and so on, I remember saying when the big four shows were happening uh, and looking at the way it was built, right? Where it's like Anthrax plays first, Megadeth plays second, Slayer third, Metallica closes if you look from the top down at the time of the big four shows, you had Metallica who had only changed, you know, the base position twice, always had the same management pretty much from the jump, you know, from ride the lightning on or whatever it was, you know, same record label at that time, like all this consistency. And then you go down to Slayer. And at that time it was the original lineup was doing the big four shows same manager for ages and ages only two different record labels at that time then you go down to megadeth and it's like okay now it's only two guys that are consistent and <laughs> one of them was out for a while and then it's they've been yeah. on a million labels they've had a million managers and then you go down to anthrax and it's like they've had a million singers they've had a million labels a million managers you know and, and not to say like you said causation doesn't equal causality but it, or but it's like or what i think i just screwed it up you said it uh, first the first time. Cor- correlation, correlation yeah yes. it does
1: not equal causation
0: causality but it's but there's something there right where it's like okay well from the top down the way this is built you have like a descending degree of of consistency both on stage and behind the scenes in terms of just the people you know so there's got to be something to it for not switching coaches in the middle of the you know, at halftime or whatever.
1: For sure. Well, I, I think
0: for Mustaine it's
1: a case of he is uh, truly like a completely unbridled, like obsessive uh, manic genius. You know yes. what I mean? And, and that goes back to what I was speaking, saying about they're not it. easy to work with.
0: Yes, and that's and that goes back to what I was saying about it was too much to contain in one band. You know, that totally. guy needed to be the leader of his own band. Yeah. And Lars needed to be the leader of a band and you know a lot of bands I think function best with the band boss where one or two people are as Gene and Paul like to say you got two guys in the driver in the in the front seat of the car and two guys in the back Um, and I think you know most bands I think function best that way being honest. Yeah I agree, I agree totally. I mean yeah when you look at a lot of bands that aggressively try to function as a democracy it seems like they don't get very far or don't get very far for very long, but yeah, I was getting, man, I was going to say something else on the Mustaine related be- Oh, I know what it was. This goes to one of your points, bringing us full circle to the top of the conversation We were are talking about the distance of time between happy Gilmore and garage Inc and how when you're of a certain age, that span of time seems super long relative to, you know, when you, you know, you said you're in your thirties now, now it's like starts flying by. Um, oftentimes one of the things said to kind of discredit Mustaine's, uh, you know, impact and influence within Metallica is that, well, he wasn't, he was barely in the band. He was in the band for this short amount of time, but in the, those formative years of a band, especially a band that's so important that short amount of time is a lot
1: yeah i, mean, I would say like a month is, a month is worth like a year in that yeah yeah In that measurement of time for sure, for you, sure. Could,
0: you could argue that that i mean it's certainly and this is no disrespect because i love jason newstead and listeners of this podcast know that um he's actually my favorite metallica bassist and i, I love all of them but You could you could certainly make the argument that Dave Mustaine had more of an impact on Metallica in that extremely short amount of time before the first album's even recorded than Newstead had in over a decade of service.
1: One hundred percent. And I love Jason too. I love everything about him. I love his personality and his personality, integrity, stage
0: presence. Yeah, everything the backing vocal. The number one thing that I missed, no disrespect to Kirk or Rob but those new set backing vocals were just oh,
1: amazing perfect perfect match and they, they became
0: such a, it was like a michael anthony in van halen for me like it became such a part. yeah of my life.
1: and it dude if you go i just recently listened to his tryouts where the bass is cranked up pretty high and it is insane his playing was like perfect for that band just incredible
0: bass playing the aggression the attack everything about his approach yeah so great and that whole idea of you know first first one in the venue last one to leave you know that that work ethic i feel like growing up a metallica fan i learned a lot from the jason
1: Newsted work ethic oh totally dude he's a kid that like hit it big and he never changed he never yeah. turned into he never lost that like childlike enthusiasm and pure intention and humility which is incredible
0: you know it's so awesome um well well dude uh i would love to have you back sometime because we could obviously as you said talk <laughs> for hours and hours yeah whatever <laughs> <laughs> this is what we do this is exactly how these episodes roll you know what we oh, were let talk-
1: me say let me say real quick looping back to the first time i that's saw that's what him. i was
0: just about to say i said, yeah. you know what we didn't even talk about actually no saying. if if anybody wants the
1: end of the story, they can go watch the Revolver. <laughs> What's the best Metallica song? Cause I tell it on there you and do. it changed and my life. It. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: It was a life changing experience for sure. Um, and it was also a life changing experience for Fred Durst. So bravo.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he he learned a few lessons that day, I think.
0: It's funny cause I've so outgrown the us versus them of, of any kind of battle lines in music, but that, but that's a particular band that for some reason and, and not even, the band as much as the specific dude that yeah. uh, that really ugh. and i yeah story for another time but i had a, a personal interaction with fred dürst and with the drummer of the band john otto that was quite unsavory so oh wow well
1: really i'm glad out. i'm glad we fucked them up and broke that stupid band <laughs> yeah. up for a while
0: that band and <laughs> and kid rock that's the other one where i'm just like no <laughs> thanks yeah but uh other than that i celebrate everyone who's been connected to metallica
1: (laughs) yeah i try to i try to celebrate everyone but you know dude we were 15 and uh we didn't fuck around if we didn't like something we we went after it you know
0: well i've told this story on the podcast before but i'll leave you with this my first time seeing metallica was monsters of rock in 88 which was van halen with sammy hagar scorpions Doc, and metallica and kingdom come oh my god and my friend and i went in our metallica shirts we stood with our middle fingers in the air during all of kingdom come (laughs) we watched metallica and then we went home amazing if i had it to do over again i would love to see van hagar i would love (laughs) to see the scorpions but at the time it was just like yeah every other band playing today is some hair metal poser stuff
1: well when your fans are that way you know that you've created
0: something special indeed indeed well, thanks so much, man. This has been super awesome. Uh don't be a stranger. Let me know if there's ever any way I can uh help you with anything. And I'll let you know when this goes up. I've actually for once have a bunch in the bank. So awesome, might be a minute. Man. Thank you. Just confirmed Dave Lombardo for the podcast this morning. Oh, you're way, shitting so. me. Wow. I'm looking forward to that. That's amazing. Dude,
1: um, I don't know if it could possibly come up, but the day before I recorded the very first Spirit of Drift full length. Mm -hmm. This is when I was still playing drums. Mm -hmm. I went to see Dave Lombardo do a drum clinic in Phoenix. And it was fucking awesome. It lasted like an hour. This was 2015. Okay. And I brought a pair of drumsticks that I was going to use to track the Spirit of Drift album. And when the signing was over, I walked up to him and... You know, he's Cuban, so I was like, hey, man, do you think you could put some some vibes on these or, like, some Santeria <laughs> shit or something? And uh, I was like, I'm using these to record an album to, starting tomorrow. And he, he looks at me, he kind of thinks, and he's, like, drenched in sweat. And then he takes the drumsticks, he rubs a drumstick under each armpit and gets them <laughs> soaked with sweat, gives them back to me. I'm I'm, like, fucking... Elated by this, and I used the drum six to record the drums for the first Spirit of Drift album, Chain to Oblivion, and they broke at the end of the last take of the last
0: song. They both oh, exploded. Are you kidding me? Of course, I'm telling him this I story. I swear to God. <laughs> I swear <laughs> to God. True story. Of course, I'm telling him this story. Please, spe- do. <laughs> Especially because it's important for guys like that to remember that those little something that's just a little, you know, 30 second moment for them is like a life-changing moment for somebody else yeah please
1: just pass on to him that i appreciate that so much and i love him and it's he's an inspiration
0: that rules the world i love it killer man yeah keep in touch i appreciate it
1: thanks brother i had a lot of fun
0: me too